0: This podcast was produced on Ghana Yurta. We respect First Nations people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. Slava, can you describe the Adelaide Festival Centre in three words?
1: I'd have to say energy, inspiration and fun.
0: Hey, it's Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 Podcast, a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I have had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed many historical moments and thousands of incredible artists. The Adelaide International Guitar Festival was founded in 2007 in answer to the renowned New York Guitar Festival and as a way to make the Adelaide Festival Centre the nation's most innovative arts hub. Since then, it's grown to be a globally successful celebration of all things guitar, attracting some of the world's biggest maestros and uncovering some of the most exciting up and coming talent in the industry. And it's all happened under the leadership of one internationally recognised wizard of guitar. This episode's guest is an instrumental prodigy and a master of a wide array of genres, with over 30 studio albums, multiple ARIA wins and MO awards. Together, in a brightly lit dressing room beside the space theatre, we talked about the many moments people and memories that have defined this person's career in these halls. Join us as we explore the life of classical guitarist Slava Gregorian and his relationship to the Adelaide Festival Centre as a world-class performer and as the Artistic Director of the Adelaide Guitar Festival since 2010. Before Slava even graced the stages as a guitar virtuoso, he started life in Kazakhstan, so strap yourself in to hear his story and the music that made it so. Slava, how exciting. I'd love to start with talking about your childhood, where you were born, growing up. You were born in 1976 in Kazakhstan. Yes. And you left, I've read a few different ages of when you left, four, five, six I was,
1: I was four and I turned five within a few months of arriving in Australia. But I was, I was four. And it was a long, quite a long journey. The uh, The path out of the Soviet Union back in those days was quite a convoluted one. There, there were official ways of leaving the country, the families being repatriated and we had, mum had cousins already living in Australia.
0: Oh, amazing. And what do you think was the reason the catalyst for leaving i mean it's big to pack up a whole family and to move to the other side of the world
1: yeah look it it is and uh, my folks were really young they were 19 when they got married had me a year year later Uh, so they were still kids really They're, they're both classically trained musicians but dad was also a drummer professionally for many years and and he started working as a jazz and jazz rock drummer in kazakhstan and you know for him the music of you know miles and weather report and that was kind of his bread and butter but there there was no access to these recordings so you'd have to you couldn't go out and buy one you'd have to get a a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy from someone and it, it was quasi illegal even though they were kids i think they Understood very early on that there's something seriously wrong with this system. If you know we're not allowed to l- listen to this extraordinary music, so they were they were pretty passionate about getting out of there. And um, luckily for for me, for them, for my brother Lenny, who was born in in Melbourne a few years later, we we made that transition as soon as we got to Australia. Dad kept on drumming with different people, so they were they were kind of they were gigging musicians. They were they were getting playing orchestral gigs during the day and then and then playing in you know bars and you know at functions and stuff like that wherever they could find work i don't think i've ever spoken about this with anyone but their their choices their musical choices were definitely not kind of mainstream commercial stuff at the time so they would i don't know they would they would do covers of algero songs but play them at the SB back bar, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you know there'd be very conflicted members of the of the public hearing these these musicians, um, you know, play really well, but sing this stuff that sounded odd to them to their ears, you know, with with Russian accents yeah. <laughs> as well. So it, it must have been. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. I mean, I, I always credit that sort of that that love of everything, everything good, <laughs> to them and their their listening habits back then you know kids don't know any anything else and uh, you know that was just the the most normal thing in the world and when a guitar was given to me that was kind of the the ideal instrument to to actually be able to explore any of these different genres they they taught me classically because that was their method that's mm. what they knew but apart from the the human voice probably the, the best one to to have in in my hands
0: Jazz, Miles Davis, Al Jarreau, drumming, and of course guitar. The breadth and variety of Slava's musical influences as a kid is simply astounding. And when you talk to Slava, his passion shines through. It's easy to see how his devotion to music was allowed to flourish throughout his childhood, both before and after his family moved to Australia. He was performing publicly by the age of eight and touring professionally by the age of just 12 with the Melbourne Mandolin Orchestra. But it was in 1993 that Slava made his biggest mark on the world of classical guitar, placing first in the prestigious Tokyo International Guitar Competition at the age of 15 As any musician knows, it takes a lot of dedication and drive to reach these levels. And as we discuss his musical journey, I'm keen to know exactly how Slava's guitar playing became more than just an after-school activity.
1: I'd, I mean, I knew it when I was about 14 or 15 years old that this is what I wanted to do. And it was because I'd had this sort of professional experience playing with mum Did they always you know whatever the fee was they they split it three ways down the middle and you know i was earning from a, a gig on a sunday would would be as much as all my mates who were doing paper rounds <laughs> all week and i thought to myself oh, I, could, I could really do this what if i had two gigs <laughs> but you know when i actually made that decision in my own head i knew that if i had enough gigs to survive to pay for the rent and i'd be absolutely thrilled and happy and that was my kind of that, that was that was the way in i knew that that would be enough anything else has been and, and anything else is a is a bonus
0: yeah what did an average day or week look like for you back when you were a teenager in terms of you had your life as a performer gigging with your family you would have also had school mm. you've got a brother that you're kicking about with and this general life as a teenager, as you yeah. said, and
1: practice. I mm. imagine
0: you would have had to do what
1: I did. Look, I, uh, there were bursts, short bursts of very intense practice, and the the one unusual thing I guess about my parents being musicians and giving me this kind of experience in a very roundabout way, but one that I'm. I'm super happy with now when i reflect on it they were actually incredibly strict about school and academic stuff so they did they didn't make me feel like they cared about the music so much that was just fun that was like a you know let's have fun now whereas the schoolwork that that wasn't you know that that had to be as great as possible Mm. so i was i felt a lot more pressure to do well at school um and to finish and get into whatever course you know i was potentially going to get into (laughs) so you know academically things were things were very kind of difficult and i felt i felt that pressure from them and then you know when getting ready for for tokyo especially around that time i was playing you know national competitions around australia as well i think it was sort of year eight year nine year ten at school um that was the toughest kind of balancing period worst part of it was getting up at you know (laughs) 5am and doing an hour and a half to two hours before school that was a bit of a nightmare (laughs) which upon reflection I'm so happy I did that (laughs) absolutely so glad I don't have to do that anymore ever again you know that was that definitely made a a really big difference so I'd, I'd kind of get the bulk of the work done before I went to school and then in the evening if I if I got another hour or two in of practice then that'd be amazing you know so you know three or four hours of proper practice was probably the the most that i I did
0: every day yeah yep that's how you become a an international sensation on guitar just as simple Uh, as three or four hours of practice i
1: think honestly i think you can if you're doing it properly you can spend less time (laughs) you know the intensity and the the concentration is so key i'm sure i could do what i was doing in three or four hours back then in about 15 or 20 (laughs) minutes now you know with that with that experience so that kind of awareness for for young players is so important i love teaching nowadays and when i do have contact with players who are sort of on that cusp of doing something really great and and they're they're putting in all these hours i actually a lot of the time i'd say it's way too much yeah like you don't go overboard you can you need to tighten things up if you do an hour but your mind actually does not wander you know if you if you're in the moment thinking about absolutely everything that you're doing you can you can achieve so much with with so little Mm. little effort well not effort but time
0: What is it about touring that you love? I mean, you're still doing it now. You're Mm. constantly on the road. You've performed all over the world. You must have done so many laps of this incredible planet and you've performed in some of the biggest and, well, probably the biggest and most revered music halls and in front of thousands of people at a time. What is it about touring that you love?
1: I, I think there's nothing that beats that. That, that moment, that connection with, with a, an actual live audience. As a, the guitar was a, my musical voice, I could never sing. So all of the storytelling happened through the playing, but the importance of that storytelling, I knew from when I started interacting with an audience, I felt that that was the most important thing to that thread, that connection, the way an audience follows the, your musical ideas. I, I, I knew how important that was and fell in love with that that feeling you know the reaction the talking to them afterwards the the learning of new pieces or anything was possible you know the creative possibilities were endless at that particular moment for me but that didn't last very long because i got incredibly bored with playing on my own the thing that that really got to me so when, when i was 18 and started playing on my own that's pretty much what i did for the next sort of four years Professionally, and you know, traveling on your own. I never, you know, at that time, I'd, I never had a, a manager or an agent that went with me, or a, there was no gear. It was just me and a guitar. <laughs> you know, it was just the same thing every night. I loved the audiences, but I, I, I got very kind of tired of playing playing the same pieces in the same way. I felt lonely. <laughs> it was around about that time when I was 22 I decided to move back to Australia after living in the UK for for about four years and Lenny would have been about 14 at the time and in the years that I was away he turned into a really great player and I think I, I think it was in 1998 I had some shows in Melbourne some solo shows and I got invited him up for about 10 or 15 minutes towards the end of this program and everything fell into place with with that duo and I mean I, I knew I wanted to do that with him forever and I think I mean he, he loved obviously loved music very much he also saw a, a very kind of I think he gave up on school immediately <laughs> yes. that that day and you know we've been we've been doing it constantly ever since I think I've been amazingly lucky to to have working relationships with loved ones but I do I love playing with anyone. Mm. I love making music with other people. I love that communication that happens, that sort of spark that makes every performance completely different.
0: And you love improvising and you love, as you say, creating music. And that is something that you can do with other people. Is it your favourite kind of music making to be improvising or to be creating music that's not necessarily so set as
1: classical music? I, I love both. I really, I really do. I mean, I, I love, there's so much so much classical music that I, I can't imagine not playing. You can invest so much time into developing something extraordinary out of a, you know, a piece that's 300 years old and has been heard millions of times in, in other formations and, but you're kind of breathing new life into it. I, lo- I love that concept. I love the spontaneity that you can bring into very set music like that, but you know, difference in, tempo and phrasing and tone like all that stuff. I I love it when when some of those things aren't worked out and you you leave it to the to the moment. That's a lot of fun. I really love you know so much new music that that we're either writing or have had written for us which includes set forms and improvised forms so a combination of, Mm. of both. And of course, you know, the odd time where where you don't know what you're doing next and you're just improvising, you know, for me, really, it's a happy combination of all those three is perfect.
0: Do you have a ritual that you have to partake in or anything that you must do before a performance
1: the only ritual which I actually do nowadays without even thinking about it is before I play when I first go out on stage I usually I pull my ear and this started when I was really young and my grandmother you know used to come along to a lot of concerts and you know there's one time she said when you, pull your ear i'll know you're saying day to me oh (laughs) and so and so you know i started doing that and she was always at the show so i was always doing this thing and it's turned into a total habit routine but most of the time when i when i do that i still i think of her
0: oh that's just beautiful that's so beautiful i'm sure she'd be incredibly proud of where you are now have you got any horror stories about performing anything that's happened to you on stage or off stage just before stage just after audience interaction
1: i had one gig years ago i was playing in actually i was, this was i was playing an electric guitar and it had a, a volume fader so it wasn't a wasn't a knob it was a fader and at the end of uh, end of the first half, I stood up, having a bow, you know, slid the fader down to switch the volume off, and the edge of it was so sharp it, com- it just completely cut open my thumb on stage. And I sort of I realised what had happened. And I got off stage really quickly. My manager had to gun it down to the Seven Eleven to get super glue. That was the the only solution that we thought of, because the you know second half was starting in fifteen minutes. So we literally glued the, glued the finger back together, had a couple of Panadol and dealt with the problem afterwards. <laughs> Suffering for your art. Yeah, that was bad.
0: One of the things I love about Slava's story is just how much of it revolves around operating outside the boundaries. Beyond the hours and hours of practice it took for him to become a master of his craft, Slava makes time to have fun, to play with his music, try new things and break a few rules along the way. It is both this dedication and deviation that has made Slava the musician he is today. And as any artist knows, you need both to push the boundaries. So it was fitting when in 2010... Slava was asked to take on the role of artistic director of the Adelaide Guitar Festival. When he stepped into the role, the festival had already been running for three years. It had headlined some of the most talented maestros from across the globe and attracted tens of thousands of attendees. Yet Slava was able to take it to a whole new level and he drew from his own experiences in the process. In terms of the Adelaide Festival Centre, have you got any favourite memories, like specific memories of yourself playing here?
1: I do. I mean, I've, many of them. <laughs> you know, really, there have been so many amazing moments where I've been pinching myself. First time playing with the Adelaide Symphony here. Oh, actually, that was that was the Guitar Festival in two thousand and eight, and played a, a piece by Nigel Westlake, Antarctica, which is one of my favourite pieces that no one ever. Programs, but Guitar Festival did it, you know, and doing that the first time around. I've, since then, I've done it a few times with, with ASO, but that first time was an incredibly special feeling. But I have to go back to the my very first appearance here, which was one of my really big breaks that happened that year, was I was asked to fill in for someone on a huge tour. I think I had about a week's notice. It was called the, the Great Guitars Tour, Paco Pena, Leo Kotke and Pepe Romero, so flamenco blues and classical guitarist were, were travelling together. Pepe Romero, the the classical one of those three, pulled out because his his father was very ill. And the promoter Clifford Hocking, who you know was such a an amazing old school impresario, and I'd met him before. He was sort of I hadn't done anything with him, but he he definitely knew of me. He invited me to into Pepe's shoes but was completely unbelievable to me because I had gone from playing little you know little churches little music societies community halls to to the festival theatre stage literally overnight it was the i think it was the third show of the tour we played in Darwin Alice Springs and the third stop was was Adelaide so this was you know the first huge stage on that tour and it was it was completely terrifying and and amazing, I remember you know meeting um, some audience members afterwards, and there was well, I think it was one of the one of the first moments I, I felt a you know really true kind of artistic buzz a high. Yeah, I'll never be able to forget that
0: A pivotal moment in mm. your career absolutely. how fabulous for you to spend so much time here now, such a big moment in your career that has mm. happened here at the festival centre. And do you have a favourite venue here at the Festival Centre that you like to personally play in or has a special place in your heart from an experience you've had here? Mm.
1: Oh, I Actually, I think that the best atmosphere that I've experienced here would have been in the space theatre when it's, when it's set up as a, as a club and you have a, you know, quite a big stage along one of the, the long sides and you know seating that's flexible so it can be cabaret seating or rows of chairs with that configuration at a a few of the festivals we've had the most some of the most spectacular nights where you can you can do anything you know I remember I think it was 2010 my first festival we 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 had that configuration we had some amazing shows in there and at the time um, Wolfgang Mutspiel who's a great jazz guitarist from Austria (laughs) He came in to, to do his sound check. He said, "If this was in New York, this would be the, the best nightclub, you know, the best jazz club anywhere in the world, because of the you know the intimacy, the sound, the production, the you know, it's the sort of stage only only a festival can really create." And it's you know it's a shame that it's, a, it's only for a few days, <laughs> but hey, we're so lucky we've got we got festivals all the time. here. So it's wonderful, wonderful to see these places used like that. What's your favourite sort of
0: behind-the-scenes area at the Adelaide Festival Centre?
1: The one that I've honestly spent the most time in would be the, the green room in the Playhouse obviously it's the the green room for the space theater as well during the guitar festival that's often a really busy area especially when we've got the competition running we've got you know competitors in all the different rooms and there's this you know we're trying to keep them as relaxed as possible with cups of tea <laughs> in in that green room while you know other shows are happening and there's always an amazing amount of kind of activity and conversation going on in there which you know that sort of feels like a home to me i, I often find myself Position there for, for the very long periods of time. One of the the other amazing experiences that I've had here, which I haven't had anywhere else in the world, is being involved with a play, uh, which was in the in the space theatre as well. It was a, a Brink Theatre production of uh, the Bridge of San Luis Ray. and we were we were here encamped for for a good month. And and I've never I've never had that experience as a musician before having the same dressing room, having the same green room and, and, again, that sort of feeling of home and being being super comfortable in a, in a space. For, yeah, for me, it's definitely the, the Playhouse green room.
0: Under Slava's leadership, the Adelaide Guitar Festival has gone from strength to strength, drawing the attention of music lovers worldwide. In fact... This is not the first time Slava's running of the festival has come up in conversation. Here's what the CEO of the Adelaide Festival Centre, Douglas Gaultier, had to say.
1: Slava Gregorian, having somebody like that who focuses a festival of that nature but brings people to perform with him who would never come to the city is truly a joy.
0: With so many career-defining moments taking place right here in the Adelaide Festival Centre, I asked Slava what direction this space could take in years to come as artists, performers and festival directors continue to bring awe to the audiences that fill its seats. How fabulous for you to be able to spend so much time here now, such a big moment in your career that has mm. happened here at the Festival Centre. I mean, we've had the first 50 years of the Adelaide Festival Centre. Where do you feel this Festival Centre will continue uh, in the next 50 and how, how do you think that that's going to look?
1: Look, I, I think it, it has to it has to continue being at the forefront of all cultural activity. I mean, it's doing that already, you know, so art that's accessible to to everyone art that's interesting to to everyone you know with a lot of these sort of stylistic borders obviously have been smashed and broken down years ago so we don't we don't have to do a lot of that um but you know continuing to do that is is really important for for all of us in the arts we need to prepare the the next generations for a lifetime of of being really into you know music and theatre and dance and finding new ways of attracting kids, young people who haven't experienced this is is incredibly important because they're they're definitely the you know, they're the future. And it's much harder to get their attention these days because they've got everything at their fingertips. So that's probably the the biggest challenge finding finding ways of, you know, getting getting the younger generation, especially kids, into into these venues and Infecting them yeah. with, a, with a love for, for the arts. Beautiful, Slava. Thank oh, you. Thank you. I love it. Love it. Could talk to you forever. I haven't thought about this at all, but now that I've got the guitar in my hands, I could play a little snippet from a, a piece that I would have played for sure in the set that I did in the Festival Theatre with, with uh, Paco and Leo back in, in '95. This is a, a piece called La Torre Bermeja, which means the, uh, the Crimson Tower by Albanus.
0: You wee to hear that live in the dressing room, <laughs> dressing room one of the Playhouse Theatre at the Adelaide Festival Centre. Thank you so much for playing that and thank you so much for speaking with us it today. It was a
1: pleasure Libby, thank you.
0: Slava Gregorian is celebrated in the classical music epicentres of Spain and Austria just as much as he is revered in the contemporary scenes of Tokyo and New York and being the Artistic Director of the Adelaide Guitar Festival for nearly 14 years now, he has certainly contributed greatly to making Adelaide a coveted classical guitar city. His story is one of dedication and passion, facilitated in part by this amazing space that has been a defining feature throughout his illustrious career you can follow Slava's influence at the 2023 Adelaide Guitar Festival. This event runs from the 1st to the 16th of July and features brilliant acts from around the world who come to the home of guitar in Australia at the Adelaide Festival Centre. To find out more about the Adelaide Guitar Festival and all of the fabulous festivals here, head to the Adelaide Festival Centre website. You'll find a link in the show notes. Slava is one of many artists who has made history here. And as we celebrate the Adelaide Festival Centre turning 50, we're looking forward to talking to more performers who have made incredible moments happen on these stages. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan, and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting and the Adelaide Festival Centre.